0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. USDA sends a supply shock to the market.
2: I was surprised. I mean, 1.6 million acre drop in planted and harvested corn acreage was something we were not expecting
1: what this means for crop balance sheets in the months ahead from flying cars to autonomous tractors the latest and greatest in technology was on display at CES and we're giving you a front row seat to why farmers were in the spotlight this year just
3: having conversations with people that are in a totally different field than you but knowing that you're so connected
1: to technology and how we're going to feed the world so what's next for ag tech an exclusive one-on-one conversation with John Deere's Chief Technology Officer at CES.
4: And our goal is by 2030, you know, in in, uh, certain production systems, to be able to have, if a a grower chooses to, a fully autonomous production system all the way through, uh, you know, spring tillage and planting all the way through harvest at the end.
1: And in
5: John's world.
4: So, how's
5: the vertical farming going?
1: Now for the news, we're getting a better look at how the harvest really went last year, courtesy of the latest supply and demand report from USDA. And it looks like the corn and soybean crops were smaller than many had anticipated, and stocks were also lower, sending both corn and soybeans up double digits after the report was released this week. While USDA did raise corn yield a bushel per acre, it cut harvested acres by 1.6 million. That's down 7% from 2021. And as for soybeans, it cut yields by more than a half a bushel and now estimates that harvested acres are at 86.3 million. Now, one of the big surprises coming in with the quarterly stocks, which were below trade estimates, corn at 10.8 billion bushels, also down 7% from a year ago and the lowest in nine years. Soybeans at just over 3 billion bushels, down 4% from December of 2021 and setting at a two-year low. Wheat stocks setting at a 15-year low at 1.28 billion bushels, down 7% from a year ago. We will take a deeper dive into these numbers coming up in our roundtable discussion. And more news that moved both the commodity and financial markets. Inflation easing again last month. The government says it declined to 6.5%, representing the sixth straight year-over-year slowdown. But some food prices still seeing double-digit gains year-over-year Egg prices, those are up 60%. And the main reason, highly pathogenic avian influenza that hit the nation's flock. Well, California has gone from extreme drought to extreme flooding in just a matter of days. The state seeing some of the heaviest rain in 80 years. Five atmospheric rivers slamming into the state over the past two weeks and dumping too much rain too fast, creating deadly conditions.
4: Something that we have not talked about in California for several years, as the soils become saturated and the ground can't hold
6: all of this fast falling rainfall in the valley locations, we are seeing increasing concerns for river flooding.
1: At higher elevations, the storms are creating a lot of snow, with some places seeing over six feet in the last week alone. This Sierra snowpack now setting up at 102% of the snow water equivalent needed by April 1st. Well, John Deere signing a memorandum of understanding with the American Farm Bureau Federation. The agreement announced during American Farm Bureau's annual convention this week preserves a farmer's right to either repair equipment their own or go to an independent technician. John Deere saying its machines can now be repaired by individuals or independent shops. It comes after it was accused of making it too costly for farmers to make fixes on their own. The Memorandum of Understanding states that owners and independent technicians cannot risk any safety controls or protocols on the equipment. Deer's intellectual property, like copyrighted software, will also be protected. Also at the convention, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack announcing a new round of funding and several projects that could impact producers. Plans include two new programs that would fill gaps in existing natural disaster and pandemic assistance. First, Phase 2 of the Emergency Relief Program. It will provide aid to producers for production and quality losses of eligible crops in 2020 or 2021 caused by natural disasters. The assistance would primarily be for producers of crops not covered by federal crop insurance. He also announced the Pandemic Assistance Revenue Program. These payments will be for producers who suffered a 15% or greater decrease in 2020 compared with either of the two years prior.
7: Unfortunately, a new beginning farmer got started in 2020 uh, and then was hit with a disaster and doesn't have the kind of information that would allow a comparison so we're creating this new pandemic assistance revenue program to assist those farmers in staying in business and staying on the land.
1: Secretary Vilsack also saying that USDA is moving forward with a plan to expand fertilizer production here at home. He says the agency is also improving risk protections for beginning, veteran, and minority producers. All right, that's it for the news. California got a break from those relentless rains late this week, but is more on the way. We have a check of weather. Next
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Closing Wheels provide quicker emergence and are more consistent in dry conditions than any other closing wheels. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 1200 series Big Dog Forage Boxes now feature new heavy-duty dual gearbox driven apron chains and are available in 26 and 30 foot models. Find out more about the Big Dog Boxes at the h website.
1: It was a wild week of weather for California and the West Coast. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joins us now. Andrew, California is in for another big dose of wet weather this weekend.
6: This weekend and throughout at least the first half of next week, we're going to continue to watch again uh, more storm systems to approach the the western coast here of the U.S. And that's going to allow for well above uh, average uh, rainfall amounts, especially for the Sierra Mountains as well as for the northern and central portions here of California. We'll also be watching a few low pressure systems coming off the southern and central Rockies, which will likely uh, bring with it more moisture chances to parts of the Midwest Great Lakes states, uh, Tennessee, Ohio River Valleys, uh, looking at uh, more above average uh, precipitation here as we head on into mid month. Uh, let's take a look at the rainfall out west, though, up across the northern western portion there of uh, Washington around Seattle, Portland. Uh, could be looking at around anywhere from 6 to 10 inches of rain. And Meanwhile again, parts of California, especially areas right along the coastline from San Francisco up north, could be looking at over 6 inches of rain and you factor in the snow with this as well across the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, they're going to be measuring to get in multiple feet here anywhere from 3 to 6 feet of snow. Uh, localized uh, will be falling again across these mountain ranges. Uh, which will certainly again continue to add to the precipitation totals out west. But watch what happens once we head towards late month, January 21st through the 28th, we shut off that moisture train out west. We start to go back below average for precipitation. And meanwhile, we'll start to see it becoming a little bit more active potentially across the eastern half of the country, which uh, basically outside of a few stronger storms off towards the deep south and a few systems up around the Great Lakes Midwestern states, it's been fairly quiet. For the east coast so far this month. But I do expect that to begin to change though as we head towards late month. That's all thanks to our jet stream that's eventually going to end up uh, changing its direction here. Here we are paused on Monday. We still have that atmospheric river out west, but watch what happens once we get towards the latter half of this upcoming week. We're gonna potentially see this upper level ridge beginning to build out west. That'll again begin to shut off that atmospheric train of system after system. Uh, Meanwhile, as we head towards later on this week, uh, we're going to be watching next weekend for this big, deep trough that could likely develop here. And as long as this starts to pan out, uh, we could be looking at uh, becoming a little bit more active across the eastern half here of the country and potentially a little bit more snowier as well for parts of the New England coastline. Let's take a look at the drought monitor released January 10th here. And the one thing to take note is California notice how there's not much red showing up at all. Just a very small, tiny little sliver that doesn't even account to half a percent there left in the extreme drought. And we're going to continue to see significant improvements here as we head on into next week. Meanwhile, the area that is still needing the precipitation is Western Kansas. Take a look at the forecast for this Monday, January 16th. We'll be watching another Colorado low developing. That'll bring rain to the Great Lakes, Midwestern states. And once we get into Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, we'll be watching another storm system developing across the central U.S. and marching its way eastward.
1: Well, what big surprises in USDA's latest report sent corn and soybean prices soaring? We will break it down with Dan Bossi and Peter Meyer next. Well, welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Peter Meyer, Dan Bosi, joining us. A plethora of USDA reports to get through. But Pete, we'll start with you looking at everything that came out of USDA wheat seedings. We have exports numbers. We have revision to the 2022 crop yields. What was the biggest surprise for you?
8: The biggest surprise, to well, I, I don't know if it was a surprise, but the biggest thing to me was that we see this constant correlation between lost supply and lost demand. The correlation in corn between last year and this year is 88 and percent. I mean, we've done we've done studies on this and it's always above 85 soybeans. It's, you know, 66. Um, so, I mean, the produ- you know, the rest of the story is the production side of the equation for North America, or for the U.S. at least is behind us. But these export numbers, you know, and some of the demand numbers still really start to worry me, despite the fact that the market reacted very positively. When you look at corn disappearance in Q1 of the marketing year, it's the lowest it's been since 2015. Part of that is going to be your exports. So sure, certainly the dollar index is heading in a friendly direction for increased exports, but I do worry about the demand side of the equation for both, for both corn and soybeans.
1: Yeah, and Dan, we're gonna dig into demand, but before we do that, let's go back to the supply side, specifically with the 2022 crop. USDA saying we lost 1.6 million acres of corn You know, was that an error in NASA's calculation or really did we have that much loss of acreage during harvest time in those drought impacted areas?
2: Listen, we can we can talk whether it's an error, whether it was an error in November or October or January. We're not certain, but we're going to take the USDA number as it is. It's it's the final number. So until we get a revision, maybe uh, next September, it's a number we have to live with. So I was surprised. I mean, one point six million acre drop in planted and harvested corn acreage was something we were not expecting. The yield I got, but this corn acreage drop to me was one of the surprises. I agree with Peter. I mean, the demand side of the question is not good, but uh, we got a supply side now that's at least going to underpin breaks until we get some better weather in Argentina.
1: Peter, USDA did make some revisions to demand, especially when it comes to the export side, but are you saying that USDA didn't go far enough?
8: Oh, no, 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 no. I think they definitely ripped a Band-Aid off of the corn export number for sure. I was a little bit surprised that they lowered soybean exports, but you know it is what it is. No, as far as we were looking for that, I mean, if you looked at, I'm sorry, if you looked at the historical trend moving forward on corn exports, 1.925 is a solid number. But again, I go back to um, my my opening comment, and I and I believe that some of this, some of these demand numbers were backed into based on the historical uh, relationship between lost supply and lost demand.
1: Dan, what is the situation with soy oil? Because around the globe, we hear how we're short of veg oil, especially with the situation that that, that Pete mentioned with sunflower oil. So what is the story there? Well, you know,
2: the story uh, depends upon where you're sitting. Uh, to Peter's point, uh, renewable diesel is a story in the United States, at least for the next nine months, maybe longer. And so as we look at balance sheets, uh, it's going to get extremely tight. If I look at soybean oil down in Argentina or Brazil at the moment, You know, it's trading about 17, 17 and a half cents cheaper. So all world demand is going to be filtered to Latin America. But as plants come online, and there's several big ones coming online this spring, it's going to be a big deal for the soybean oil market. And our balance sheets are still tightening. So for me, the one bull market that I see looking forward is indeed bean oil.
1: Still a record crop in Brazil. USDA did make some revisions when it comes to Argentina. Do you think there's more room for change there? Or do you agree with what USDA has to say?
8: Oh, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room to move in Argentina, in our opinion. I mean, when we talk to internal crushers there, it's maybe a 38 crop. Um, USDA was what, a 49.5, and I guess they're 46 and change. I, I'm taking it a little bit lighter than that. I'd probably be between 40 and 42. On corn, I'd be at 50 for them. Um, and basically, our, our soybean reduction had to do with the planting pace. Really, that they only got about eighty-five percent of the intended crop in the ground, so that's simple math at that point. Now, as we all know, soybeans can benefit from stress. Uh, maybe we get a little bit of a, of a bigger yield, but our changes in Argentina was just based on planting area, and we would still be still be fairly um, well, not fairly, but a, a bit lower than the USDA in Brazil. Brazil is what it is. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, that's uh, that that could balance Argentina out a bit but you know i mean we still haven't even we still haven't even planted the the safrina crop and all of a sudden everybody's still talking 122 plus show me when the crop gets planted show me what's going on there it's still early there the beans okay 150 152 i'm always conservative by nature we've been at 150 for a while there's no reason for me to change that
1: all right what are dan's thoughts on south america plus um you know a big winter wheat seeding number coming out of usda we'll talk about that that's all to come Stay with us right here on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, what does the data show about the future of vertical farming? That's John's World this week
5: enough vertical farms have been put into operation that early data can offer a suggestion how that idea is going to work out. Now, full disclosure, I never thought they made sense on any level other than futuristic fantasy, like monorails. Multi-story buildings filled with produce in the heart of a city were such seductive images that believers bet technology could solve all the messy details like economics, thermodynamics and agronomy if we just tried hard enough. While there are some operational vertical farms, and this could just be the ugly period most new technology struggles through, it appears the industry could go the way of other capital-eating startups. Vertical farming could be the segue of agriculture, falling way short of the hype. Some of the obstacles are obvious energy use being the top of the list. While LED cost and efficiency triggered the whole concept of growing stuff indoors by lowering growing light costs, it's still an order of magnitude more expensive than free solar outdoors energy in some place like Arizona. There were agronomic surprises like what happens when plants don't experience wind and pollinators have no access. There was consumer uncertainty about the product. It's clearly not organic, for instance. Nobody really has invented the standard building to prevent reinventing the wheel each time, making each structure a one-off expensive prototype the capital burn is enormous and investors are running out of patience. Meanwhile, as the Finger Lakes region around Leamington, Ontario has demonstrated, properly located enormous horizontal greenhouses seem to have cleared many of these hurdles. To be sure, Our dependence on concentrated growing areas like California or Texas is being tested by climate change and especially water availability, not to mention labor for some crops, but they seem to be keeping groceries supplied, as long as the trucks run, of course. As trade frictions ease and ingenious retailers find workarounds to import specific products, The vegetable business continues to be highly competitive and demand, not supply-driven for the most part. The clincher for me was all I ever saw growing in those futuristic photos were greens. How much salad do we need anyway?
1: Thanks, John. So what is a realistic view of the future of farming? Well, coming up later on the show, we have an exclusive one-on-one interview with John Deere's Chief Technology Officer from CES. But first, a blast from the past. Machine repeat he has Tractor Tales this week.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Looking for the next big yield breakthrough? Then look to Pioneer. By combining industry-leading R&D with rigorous local testing, what's next happens here at Pioneer.
5: Hey folks, we're Kansas bound this week for Tractor Tales to check out an Oliver 1750. This is a
7: 1969 Oliver 1750. And it's, uh, I don't know the serial break, but it does have the over-under shift, which the early ones just had hydropower a high-low. You just don't find very many olivers down here around this Lawrence, Kansas area. I mean, there's a few, but just not very many. Uh, If you're wanting to find one, it's just, you almost have to go north, up into Iowa and Minnesota, up through that area. I just kind of got on an oliver bug. I don't know why I start. (laughs) Get on here, and I, st- and I I order some Oliver books, you know, online and and Amazon, and then I I start looking on Google about this and videos, and I always wanted an Oliver. I wanted Dad to get one back when we had a, a dealer in Lawrence. When I was a kid, I always heard the Oliver's was a Cadillac of tractors, even above John Deere. You know, back like in the sixties and stuff. But I don't know. That's just hearsay, I guess. But you know, I don't know. I just thought I wanted one.
1: Well, from the past to the future, one thing was clear at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas last week. The ability to connect consumers to farmers elevated agriculture's image. But It also created meaningful conversations. Up next, we're giving you a front row seat to why agriculture took center stage at CES.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition.
1: Well, the global tech industry gathered under one roof last week to see the latest and greatest in technology. And this year, agriculture took center stage. What's traditionally been a consumer electronics show is one agriculture is playing a bigger role in. This week, we're giving you a front row seat to the 2023 Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, as John Deere connected consumers to farmers, giving a glimpse into the reality of farming today. From driverless vehicles to a flying car, this year's Consumer Electronics Show was full of the latest technology and a few surprises. And one popular attraction was this, the chance to meet and speak with farmers.
3: We actually are a vertically integrated company. We take um, rice from the farm to a finished product, and we actually even have
1: our own brand now called Four Sisters. Northeast Louisiana farmer Merrill Kennedy and Travis Center of Kaiser, Arkansas, were just two of the farmers in John Deere's booth this year, answering questions and pulling back the curtain on production agriculture today. The biggest question is, you know, you know, is this machine that we're standing behind autonomous? During this year's CES, attendees didn't just get a look into the future. They were able to see the ag technology already at work in fields across the U.S. Just having
3: conversations with people that are in a totally different field than you, but knowing that you're so connected to technology and how we're going to feed the world.
1: Kennedy is a second-generation farmer who, along with her dad and three sisters, created the brand Four Sisters, proving rice is part of this family's legacy. So retail has been a whole new journey
3: for us as a company honestly before 2019 We really didn't even have a website. So we were truly a commodity-based agricultural company. So it has truly been a
1: transformation for us. Kennedy says as CES sparked conversations with consumers, it's technology that's helping discover what solutions really do make an environmental and production difference on their farm.
3: I think probably one of the hardest things that we've been facing recently is bringing um, that sustainability journey to life in a way that is meaningful to consumers, right? And fast enough, having that kind of balance and providing the data to back up what we've been doing for so many years. I mean, really, the U.S. farmer is the most sustainable in the world. We just have to tell that story better.
1: Center considers himself on the cutting edge of adopting technology on his farm with 38 tractors, three combines, four sprayers and three cotton harvesters. He was able to give those at CES an inside look at how orchestrating work across 20,000 acres requires technology on his farm today. I remember early days
9: of data. We always I had flash drive. I just chased <laughs> machines with a flash drive and I felt like I was just
1: working too hard to gather information and not actually okay, using what I had to get it. A decade ago, Center decided it was time to go all in, processing his farm's information into the cloud, while also investing in the systems and technology to propel his farm into the future. We kind of had a little bit here and a little bit there. Let's just
9: put everything connected. That way it's all in one unit. We can see where everything's at. We know where everybody's going on. I don't have to keep detailed notes. I know everything's going into the cloud. I don't have to worry about chasing data. The data is working for me, I'm not working for it yet.
1: When Center explores what's next, he believes automation is the wave of the
9: future. I think when you get into automation, which is what's coming, autonomy, being able to drive machines, you're not necessarily gonna lose labor. Their job may change from
1: being an operator to actually maintaining and keeping that machine moving. And while some automation is already at work in agriculture today, the velocity at which those changes are happening may be the biggest difference in the years ahead.
9: I have had the opportunity to use that some of that autonomous machines. They brought a demo machine, and I was very pessimistic, but it actually it did a phenomenal job. And so me seeing it firsthand said, okay, we can do this. It can be done. Let's go forward with it.
1: Association of Equipment Manufacturers Senior Vice President Kurt Blades says agriculture's large footprint at CES elevated the image of ag last week.
8: Well, the biggest takeaway that I had from CES uh, representing the off-road equipment industry was, hey, look at the really interesting technology that our members and the entire industry is working at to solve sustainability
0: challenges for society.
1: So why is ag tech growing so rapidly? Blade says it's driven by not only agriculture being part of the solution but the amount of investment entering into the space and the sheer amount of data.
8: The data is what's allowing good robotics to, you know, make more sense. It's allowing for better management decisions. It's allowing for, you know, better prescriptions. It's you know, you have to have the data in place uh, to be able to take advantage of some of the technology that was unveiled. Uh, either in in practice or in concept
0: at CES.
1: The biggest surprise during the Consumer Electronics Show, just how excited those consumers were to meet real farmers. A low-tech, high-touch opportunity for the industry to show off its positive impact on the world. From the next wave of ag tech to the talk of electric tractors, what does the future of ag tech really look like? We'll find out as we sit down one-on-one with John Deere's Chief Technology Officer coming up. But first, how big is Brazil's crop this year? And did USDA's latest revisions do that justice? So we talk to Dan and Pete again when we come back.
2: Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit machinerypeat.com and click Sell Mine. Machinerypeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online.
1: Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Continuing our conversation about all the USDA reports and the numbers that we received on Thursday in those January reports. Dan, you have offices in South America. We like to get your take often, but when you look at USDA's numbers and their thoughts on Brazil and Argentina, do you agree?
2: Well, we're a little bit higher. You know, we're right 154 right now. We do have a crop tour that's starting next week, and we'll do a better assessment of the northern half of Brazil But as it sits today, Tyne, we think a 154 catches it. But again, remembering that every 5% move in yield in Brazil is 7.5 million tons. So, you know, to have a 160 crop with good weather, if Rio Grande de Sol gets rain, it's still not impossible. To be under 148, 147, possible. But these are big swings. But weather over the next three to four weeks will be very, very critical and determine where we fall within that vernacular.
1: Dan, another big swing coming out of these U.S. winter wheat seedings numbers out of USDA, 11% increase, catching some people off guard. You know, give us some perspective on those numbers. Will we harvest all of those acres?
2: Well, it was up 3.7 million acres, one of the biggest gains we can find in years. And so, you know, again, when you have a revenue insurance price last fall, that was 880 plus. Farmers went out and seeded wheat. And whether it was seeded in dust or seeded in a crop, a lot of it was planted for insurance purposes. We believe that less will be harvested. And as we get to those abandoned acres sometime in the month of May, you're going to see a sharp fall from that estimate. Nonetheless, that wheat corn spread is now in the 71 cents in the spot position. So it does act as kind of a cap on corn. And the same standpoint, the wheat market will find a little support because it's going to be working into feed rations.
1: Pete. You mentioned demand earlier and we talked about the export demand and you talked about renewable diesel. But what are your thoughts on ethanol? Do you think that USDA will make some more revisions now as we enter into February in that report?
8: I mean, when you when you look around the U.S. and you look at the the highest premiums being paid for corn is being paid by the ethanol guys. Truthfully, I don't get it unless they knew this report was coming out ahead of time. I mean, we saw we saw corn trading into into eastern Nebraska, western Iowa at seven, seven twenty-five, seven thirty this week. So I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard. I, I totally understand the way an ethanol plant works. Right, they have to be running at full bore all the time in order to get the most gallons per bushel. But they're certainly paying up for it. So, as far as the ethanol numbers are concerned, they're fine. They were kind of flat. Really, really nothing to write home about there. So. I don't know. It it does seem, though, like ethanol. Ethanol
2: is keeping a big bid under this market in the interior for sure.
1: Dan, is that what you're seeing as well?
2: Yeah, no, I I would agree with Peter, though. We are about 50 million bushels less on our corn grind. We just say this because as we look at the premiums being paid in the Western Corn Belt and where margins are, we don't think those people are going to be quite as aggressive. And then when I look at gasoline consumption, I have a a back down, if you will, in some of my ethanol usage numbers. So, you know, um, again, not a big haircut, but a little lower than USDA. I would also trim corn exports a little bit more relative to uh, world availability and what the uh, the Ukrainians are offering. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, you got to have another demand driver to take us higher once we get beyond the after effects of this report. I think that's lacking in the market, at least
1: for now. All right. Dan, Pete, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break, and then it's a one-on-one interview, exclusive interview, with John Deere's chief technology officer. That discussion happens next. Well, this may be hard to believe, but it has been 27 years since John Deere introduced GPS. And as much as ag tech has changed in that time, it's where the world of ag tech is going. That may really blow your mind. And during CES last week, we had the chance to exclusively sit down with John Deere's Chief Technology Officer, Jamie Hindman, to pull back the curtain and see where technology and agriculture may be going in the years ahead. Well, as Chief Technology Officer, you may have a little bit of bias, but... Is John Deere a technology company?
4: No doubt. Um, and I think you know, it's often understated how much technology is in our machines and in the, the production systems uh, themselves and how much technology farmers deploy on the farm today. Um, I think the, there's no doubt that Deere is a technology company, but we're also a manufacturing company. right? And none of the technology works in and of itself. You still have to have the equipment like the sprayers and the tractors and the combines to bring that technology into the field and make it useful.
1: When you look behind you and seeing things like the sea and spray technology here that's available today. Is that a hint of what's to come?
4: Oh, no doubt. I think what you're seeing on the floor today, whether it's sea and spray or autonomy, those, those are foundational technologies that we're going to continue to build on over time, right? You look, sea and spray is an example, the delivery of herbicides is step one, but you can start to think about things like growth regulators and cotton. You can think about things like perhaps. Um, uh, other types of chemicals that get that get applied on the farm as, as being able to be moderated through seed and spray Those are all uh, opportunities for us once you have the ability to sense something in the field and then act on it. And autonomy is the same way. We've made a down payment on, on uh, autonomy for the future with this tillage solution mostly because it's the easiest place for us to start. It's the most practical, from a technology perspective, place for us to start. But eventually that's gonna become, uh, be, become an autonomous planting opportunity. It's gonna become an autonomous grain cart opportunity. When we get tractor jobs finished, you'll, we'll look at sprayers, we'll look at combines. And, and our goal is by 2030, you know, in, in uh, certain production systems, to be able to have, if, a, if a, a grower chooses to, a fully autonomous production system all the way through uh, you know, spring tillage and planting, all the way through harvest at the end.
1: But that's not going to be the only offering, right? I mean, how are you making sure that still there is that choice? Thing? Yeah,
4: well, th- there's a reason there's a cab still on the tractor, right? There's a lot of, of growers that maybe don't want the autonomy solution or, or don't see value in it for them at this point in time that still want to be able to operate the machine. There's a lot of jobs on, that are done on the farm that we won't make autonomous. an emotional attachment and a satisfaction that you get of seeing the work done yourself. Uh, and so there's a reason that cab's still on the tractor like i think that's an important part of it
1: when you talk to some farmers some uh, are fearful that it's moving so fast that they won't be able to keep up so is john deere serving these farmer customers, what are you doing to make sure that even though this technology space is moving so quickly that farmers still are absorbing everything and keeping up with with the changes that are occurring?
4: The user experience has to be, we we talk about it as walk-up easy, right? You have to be able to, you shouldn't have to be an engineer to run the equipment, shouldn't have to be an engineer to set up things like auto track turn automation, right? And so we're working hard to make sure that the user experience is seamless that it's consistent across all of our products. It hasn't always been that way, admittedly. Uh, and that uh, anybody can walk up to the machine, fire it up, you know, turn on the, the, the Gen 4 display and navigate their way through setting up the technology and using it.
1: The electric tractors, okay? Big, big talk of that on social media this year. You see an electric excavator that's here at the show. Yeah. Are we going to see all
4: electric tractors? In certain power levels with certain uh, customer duty cycles, the answer is is probably yes. Um, And and in rough terms, I would say roughly 100 horsepower and under, and relatively light duty cycles. uh, Lithium ion chemistry batteries can work. Like You can package enough energy into the, the tractor to make that work. As you get into higher power levels, the answer to that's no. I, you know, I, in the keynote yesterday, I talked about the 8R tractors when I ran the numbers on if you powered that with a, with a lithium ion battery today, it's, it's uh, you know twice the volume, twice the, the weight, twice the mass, and four times the cost. Like, that just doesn't pencil, right? And so as you get into some of those higher horsepower applications, uh, renewable fuels from a, a carbon offset per- perspective actually make more sense to us than uh, electrification, things like renewable diesel uh, from soybean oil or canola oil. Uh, or ethanol uh, as, a, as an alternative in a, in a compression ignition engine uh, would be a more interesting solution at the higher power levels.
1: Last question. Okay, wrap it up. Chief Technology Officer of John Deere. Where do you see the average row crop farm 10 years from now? What does that look like to you?
4: Um, hopefully a lot more predictable than farming is today. and. Um, and I'd say predictable in the sense that uh, labor, you, you know you where know you're not worried about labor anymore um, because you've got an ability, whether you use, it, you use it all the time or not, for the machines to do some of the work themselves. Maybe it's not all the work, but some of it themselves. Um, I do think we will be to much closer to plant-by-plant management at that point in time, uh, especially in coarse grains than we are today. Uh, And that's going to unlock the ability for us to do much more of of this data analytics and be much more prescriptive in managing uh, the overall crop uh, and the overall production of that crop and our inputs to that crop uh, on a plant by plant basis.
1: Thank you to Jamie, and we took an even deeper dive into how the technology that John Deere is creating will allow you to manage your farm plant by plant. You can catch my full conversation with Deere's chief technology officer on our Farm Journal YouTube page, where we have more to show you from CES later in the show. But first, John Phipps. Well, is solar energy now the dominant source of energy in the U.S.? Here's John Phipps.
5: Two weeks ago, in my retrospective of 2022, I made the following statement. Solar energy quietly overtook coal as the top source of U.S. electricity, even as the world used more coal than ever. The first part is wrong in many ways, and several readers pointed out my error, so I conducted an autopsy to find out where I went off the rails. While I didn't find a good excuse, I did find discover some contributing factors for my blunder. First our national energy data comes from the EIA, the Energy Information Agency. Global energy information comes from the I, uh, International Energy Agency, the IEA. Notice the acronym similarity. I wish I had. Second, as Gene Pakenham pointed out, generating capacity is one number, electricity generated is another, and electricity sales are a third. Coal plants are effectively run full speed or stopped. Even as our coal capacity is declining, those plants are the go-to source because they're hard to start up and shut down, and other generators like peaker gas plants or renewables are idle until needed. Media tends to focus on capacity, however, since it predicts the future, even though it may not be fully utilized presently. Third, solar is usually lumped in with renewables, especially wind, but it can also include hydropower. The closest I came to a true statement last week best applied to renewable capacity, not electricity generated or sold. Finally, this chart in the Financial Times started the whole mess. I fixated on the crossover point without bothering to scan to check the dates. Global solar capacity is predicted to exceed coal capacity around 2027. The fault is all mine, but I think effective charts differentiate actual data from predictions with shading or dotted lines. Finally, one reader closed with this statement, John, do some research rather than drinking the progressive Kool-Aid. I find that phrase despicable, even by modern public discourse standards. In November 1978, I was a 30-year-old father with two small children. As the stories and images from the Jonestown Massacre unfolded where parents forced toddlers to swallow cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, It broke my heart and embedded a sorrow that is revived by this callous reminder. My opinions are fair game for all kinds of abuse. It comes with the job. But I believe our public conversation will be better when this ghastly illusion loses popularity.
1: Absolutely, John, thank you. Well, another alternative energy source, electric. So where does electric equipment make sense? We head back to CES next.
0: Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on Earth.
1: Well, during CES last week, Bobcat unveiled what it's calling the world's first all-electric track loader. And John Deere revealed an electric excavator. So why does electric work in construction equipment? That's what we asked at the show last week.
6: There's a lot of advantages that electrification can bring to an excavator like this Uh, one of them that comes immediately to mind is noise so an operator in the cab is communicating with operators that are on the ground and in and around the job site and when we can take that diesel noise out of the equation they can communicate a lot more effectively.
1: Also, you'll have the chance to see the future of ag tech and meet eight ag tech startups during Top Producers Summit this year. It all happens January 23rd through the 25th in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll also have a live taping of U.S. Farm Report on Wednesday that week, and it's a great lineup of speakers. There's still time to sign up and register and join us for the 2023 Top Producers Summit later this month. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed
1: by Farm Journal Broadcast.